Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as host Andy Hagens interviews asset managers, family offices, and industry thought leaders as they discuss the most effective strategies to grow generational wealth. From commodities to real estate, venture capital, private equity, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I am your host, Andy Hagens. And today we're talking about family offices, logistics, real estate, private equity, all kinds of awesome topics. And with me, I have Nick Parrish, who is Managing Director at Crescent Partners. Nick, welcome to the show. Hey, Andy. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And, and you know, right before we hit the record button, we were talking about everything that Crescent is involved in, which I was fascinated by. But then I was like, you know what? We got to shut up and, and click record <laughs> and get, get this conversation uh, recorded. So I want to start with with the origin story of Crescent Partners, because uh, I know it, Crescent is a very diversified business that was born from family offices. So could you tell us a little bit about the origin of Crescent? Uh, happy to do it. And hopefully I can maintain that same organic flow that we uh, we had going before. So, uh, but happy to be here and, and, and really appreciate you uh, you having us. Uh, I, I think you're right. I'll, I'm happy to tell you the origin story at Crescent. And I, I think it's important because uh, in so many ways it colors uh, the way we think about investing and the way we we deploy capital, and that's that's really based on kind of where we came from and and how we were founded. So uh, take uh, you know probably ten years back, uh, our two co-founders, uh, a gentleman named Avi Stein and Eric Becker, uh, both Avi and Eric were private equity investors. Uh, both had long storied careers, uh, both as operators as well as building private equity funds. Um, that dates back 30 years between Avi and Eric uh, individually had built more than 150 companies, uh, raised and deployed a significant amount of capital. Uh, the great thing about being uh, in private equity is when you do well for your limited partners, you tend to do pretty well for yourself. And so both had uh, you know, managed to create personal wealth for themselves. And um, in early 2010s, uh, separate, unrelated, we're both faced with personal tra tragedies. Uh, Avi was diagnosed with stage four lymphoma um, and wound down his activity and his fund to focus on getting better. Uh, Eric lost a daughter to leukemia, a 21-year-old daughter with leukemia. And so he took time off, uh, left his business and focused on philanthropy. Uh, in that time away, they started focusing on family. And both had built their own family offices through which they were investing capital for themselves, for their for their children. Um, they were both at their hearts private equity investors. So they loved buying businesses. They loved buying real estate. Uh, and that was really what fueled them. And a couple of realizations happened uh, during that time. One, they both realized they were no good at retirement. Uh, they, they both <laughs> like uh, building and buying things. And so they, you know, they were looking for that next opportunity. Uh, and two, they found that as they were now private citizens out trying to identify high quality, interesting private market opportunities, particularly focused on private equity and real estate, they looked across the landscape and they, they struggled with what they found. Um, 
they could go invest in big multi-billion dollar funds, you know, often at high fee levels uh, and a lack of transparency. Mm-hmm. They could go source things from their buddies at their country clubs, but, you know, the, the quality of those opportunities were limited. Um, you know, they as individuals didn't have what they felt was the right degree of scale to go out really fully diligence opportunities and execute to the level they did at their firms. And so they saw this opportunity to pool their capital together uh, with the vision of over time bringing in other families with the belief that with scale comes advantages. You can hire more uh, and better talent. You can uh, you know, you can face the investment community with with larger dollars and therefore drive better benefits. And so it was through that idea that the Crescent was born. It was really, you know, came from Abby and Eric's family offices, uh, which over time has grown uh, quite meaningfully to represent today more than a thousand families. Uh, wow. Investing a yeah, wow. a thousand families, you know, approaching thirty billion dollars at this point. Um, and you know, really providing full outsourced multifamily office solutions across public and private market investing, trust, estate, tax, governance, next-gen education, concierge. But at its core, very much focused on private markets. Um, and so with and why, that, why is that? I'm sorry to yeah. interrupt, but you know, yeah, please. When I hear family office, um, let's say you wave a magic wand, you put me in charge of the family office. There's really two sides to it, right? There's the, the practical, well, there's probably more than two sides, but there's at least two sides. There's that practical side of dealing with people and estates and trusts and you know legal accounting. And then there's the side with investment management. I mean, I honestly, I get, I get the sense that managing the investments is maybe the smaller part of the job, but I think you could make an argument like, well, let's just do 60-40 Vanguard index funds, you know, stocks and bonds, call it a day, get a great uh, tax attorney, get a great tax accountant and focus on the human side of this. So so why the focus then on private equity and alternatives? Is it because the returns are higher with less volatility or is it just because this is how we're wired and we get bored just holding the Vanguard index fund? So it's funny, Andy, the, in, in the family office space, there's an all too used phrase, uh, but I'm going to use it again. If you've seen one family office, you've seen one family office. I think by, by the very nature of the term and family, and it, it's a very personal thing. And we spoke before, I mean, the definition of what constitutes a family office is different to everybody. Family office for some is an individual and a bookkeeper doing accounting, and that's the family office. There are others that are multi-billion dollar, multi-hundred employee organizations with their hands in everything and everything in between. It really is a very personal uh, experience for many people. It's driven by you know who the family and or the, the, the entrepreneur and wealth creator is, what their goals and objectives are. Sometimes it's very investment focused. Sometimes it's not. Um, it's more a... Uh, you know, a holding company through which, you know, you can execute on the wishes of the family. So it's really, really very unique for, for most uh, families and individuals. I think what drove things for Abby and Eric and for Crescent, they, you know, they had this time um, away where they were trying to find their, uh, their next opportunity. And, you know, one of the topics that came up was around wealth creation. How has wealth 
been created, you know, in the United States in the last last century. And they actually, during that time, petitioned to study, uh, used a research group to go out and look at, I don't remember what the universe was, but, you know, it was Forbes data, one of the kind of billionaires list and looked back over a long period of time and basically came to the realization that wealth was created, you know, by and large, by doing two things, either owning a private business or by owning a real estate. And what was most interesting to them is the average hold period on those investments was long, so 22, 23 years. So the idea was true wealth has been created either it's through ownership, through owning an asset, through owning a business or real estate and holding that for a long period of time and being able to grow and, and compound that wealth. That's not news to large institutions and frankly, large family offices who have, you know, look at the endowment, you know, endowments and pension funds. Mm-hmm. They've been investing in private equity and alternatives going back 20, 30 years in some cases. So that's very commonplace in the institutional world. That hasn't necessarily trickled down to the, let's call it ultra high net worth, smaller family office space. But you know, the values there. And that's been evidenced by many of these, these large uh, institutions that, you know, long-term wealth creation, there is an illiquidity of premium that exists in the market mm-hmm. where if you can find good opportunities with good partners, you know, be willing to hold that for a long period of time, there is additional, re- you know, return that can be generated. And the vision was let's, you know, let's try and bring some of that opportunity down to a level that didn't necessarily exist before. Yeah, no, I, I get that. And that's a phrase that I hear over and over, patient capital. Uh, we've had DJ Van Corin on the show, uh, who's involved with the Family Office Real Estate Institute, and he loves that term, patient capital. And, and you know, it makes sense to me that so many of these family offices um, have their origin with entrepreneurs, whether they're real estate entrepreneurs or, or private equity and, you know, as I get older, I think I'm an entrepreneur and I think about a couple of businesses that I've co-founded and then exited and then grew to be like way larger than I ever thought they could be. And so I've, I've kind of learned that lesson of patient capital, you know, the hard way, I, I suppose. Um, but let's talk about what being patient can actually give you in, in real terms, in terms of ways that it can enhance your returns, in terms of how it can give you more flexibility in your investment strategy. So I know that that Crescent Partners uh, has a lot of works in a lot of different investment asset classes. Um, and you know, you've made a comment, but at least before we recorded, um, that you know you have that opportunity to be opportunistic. So can you tell our listeners like wh- what does that really give you? That long term time horizon, in practical terms. What does that mean? What's the difference then between a family office that's thinking that way versus another type of asset manager that that has their own sector that they have to follow? In many cases, legally, that they're obliged to follow. Yeah, yeah. It's in a couple of ways. I think you know one one thing that's important. Liquidity is one of the most overbought assets in the world, and in the sense that many people don't understand their own need for liquidity and therefore probably value it more than they need to. Uh, So if you're dealing with true family offices who have what is multi-generational capital, it was like part of their capital that they need to live. And I use the term live loosely. I mean, that 
even if you have homes and debt payments and everything else, there's a certain finite amount of capital that you need that if set aside, managed appropriately, asset liability matched, you know, with a high degree of certainty, you can cover your bases there. Three years living so, expenses or five years living expenses or whatever the formula is, right? And, what, and everybody can come to their own comfort level in that. But the sure. bottom line is if you're truly a, a, a family of scale or an investor of scale, that's going to leave you with a pool of surplus capital, which is probably meaningful, mm-hmm. wh- which will never be spent in your lifetime. Uh, and so that, that's the flexible capital. That's if, if you can really isolate that capital and say, what's the money that I don't, that I don't need, that, I, that can go out and be much more return seeking, focus on those long, longer opportunities, that gives you more flexibility. Um, it, it, gives you, it gives you the ability to look across asset classes, across time horizons, allows you to go up and down capital structures where you know, you have a broader set of tools that you can, you know, employ in your investment strategy. And you don't have to be beholden to one particular time frame or asset class. And that's that's very much the lens that that we look at the world through. So, you know, we at Crescent collectively manage $30 billion. We look at the world through the lens of what would a $30 billion single family office do? Mm-hmm. What would you do if you had no defined investment mandate if you had a broad set of relationships and networks through which you could source opportunities a broad and skilled team that has the ability to to really isolate and and execute on these strategies and you had an undefined time horizon you could invest in things that are you know two months or 20 years if you had that flexibility and could really stack up what's the best risk return profile how would you do that? And that's a real advantage. Uh, you know, we don't, so when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. You know, we don't have to be in any one asset class all the time. We can really be looking opportunistically. And um, you know, we talked a, a little bit, or you referenced um, lo- logistics, real estate. G- good example where, you know, that's not something that may always be attractive, but there is a very finite moment in time where supply demand imbalance is out of whack we have the flexibility of, of mind and of capital where we see that opportunity and we can, we can deploy capital into it, knowing that it might not be there forever. Sure. Is there always opportunity? I mean, I'm thinking of, let, let's say two, two years ago, you know, or, or, or certain periods in time where it just feels like every single asset is overvalued. Is that just because I'm not a family office that I come to that dumb conclusion or because because I mean even at the institutional level, like speaking of logistics, real estate, I mean you saw institutions wanting to buy just portfolios of logistics, real estate, industrial real estate, you know, warehouse, and they have to put to work large amounts of money. It's not necessarily about getting the most attractive valuation. It's like we have to deploy a huge amount of capital, what's available. Um, so it you know. How does a family office deal with that with a market environment? And maybe we're not there anymore, but in a market environment where it just feels like everything is overvalued. Yeah, great, great question. You know, listen, I think it's back back to the flexibility of mandate. We don't have to deploy capital. You know, it's uh, if, if the market is such where there really is truly no opportunity, 
uh, and the best decision, you know, again, looking across the spectrum of risk return, if the best decision is to hold cash as opposed to deploying it into over, you know, overpriced assets, you have the flexibility to do that. Now, I would argue that if you had really a truly untethered or, or, or flexible mandate, you could find opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, and but will exists. it scale? Will it, will it scale? You know, to the amount of man- money that you're managing. That's a, that's a different question, right? To, absolutely. And it's, uh, you know, you sometimes have to be creative to find it. And, you know, and it, by the way, may come, you know, an important part. The opportunity may not just be in buying the right assets at the right prices, but there's structural, structural alpha, you know, the way you structure something might be uh, value added. So you sometimes have to employ different tools. You got to be a little bit creative in, in environments where, uh, you know, assets are overbought, but I'm a believer that somewhere in this big world, you know, opportunity mm-hmm. exists and, you know, and, and just to, to double click on the logistics thing for a minute, not to go down that path, but good example on your comment, you know, logistics um, is not new news to anybody. You know, the, the e- e-commerce revolution has been happening now for years, if, if not the last decade, that has driven a change in the way our, uh, supply chain functions, uh, and we're operating on a antiquated supply chain, and we're shifting into what will be a kind of new supply chain built around e-commerce and, and reshoring. Th- that's not news. That's not. It's a trend that's been happening for a while. There are a large number of investors who uh, like industrial and, and warehouses as an asset class, and are deploying an extraordinary amount of money, thus driving prices up. Um, and so that's been happening for years. But what's interesting is uh, there is a fundamental shortage of these logistics facilities, um, but there's a shortage of capital that's able to deploy them. Most of those big institutions that you're talking about, either by mandate or by choice, uh, are not able to develop logistics facilities. So they are happy to buy those logistics facilities once they are built, leased, and, and, and stabilized, but they can't. Uh, they can't build. And so that's where someone like us can step in and say, okay, we, we have expertise in logistics. We have the ability to be more patient and you know, underwrite different risks than an institution might. Sure. And so if we can step into the, that gap, build logistics facilities, ultimately knowing that there's an off-ramp for those, that's a really attractive dynamic for us. And so sometimes it's just looking at the same opportunity through a different lens. With that flexibility, we can, you know, we can create the opportunity. And and the scale. I mean, reading between the lines, it, it sounds to me, well, you need the flexibility, but you also need the scale, right? Like I I can't go buy, uh, build a 5,000 square foot warehouse and sell that to CalPERS. CalPERS might be saying, well, we want to, maybe not CalPERS, I don't know if they're allowed to, but you know, some big institution might, we want to deploy a billion in capital or 5 billion in capital into the sector, but there's nothing available even to buy right now. So a, a family office with the capital and the scale and the know-how to go out and build it, you basically know that there's a buyer on the other side before you even build it. You know, we recently had Saxum on the show. I don't know if that um, episode is published yet. I think it's publishing shortly. Um, but Chad, he talked about just the fundamentals with industrial real estate and multifamily are so 
strong. It's not that there's no risk, but you're going into a space where you know you have tailwinds of that supply and demand already being favorable. And if you project out another 20 years, if anything, the delta, what's needed to stabilize the market and bring those two curves into alignment, seems like it's only getting wider. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think uh, just going back on how to address your scale point, because I do think it's a really important point and it's a realization that we've come to is, you know, scale does matter, um, particularly if you're really trying to invest in institutional quality assets. And it's in part back to our origin story, part of the view that if we could pool together our capital and the capital of other families around us, we could get to a point where we can write checks very similar in size to an institution, but we can be a flexible, kind of more opportunistic source of capital for some of these partners. And I think you're seeing that, by the way, very, you know, not just in real estate, broadly speaking, where families, family office, multifamily office type capital is starting to compete for opportunities with more traditional private equity and real estate firms because. The size and scale is there, but you don't have some of the constraints of, you know, let's say a pension fund or a, a more established fund. So I think that that scale piece is important in, in driving opportunities. Um, on the real estate, you know, kind of the dynamics front, I, I think you're right. I, you know, talk about it in more detail, but, you know, there are some very interesting demographic seismic changes happening in the U.S. around migration and, the, you know, some of this was expedited by COVID and the ability to, to live and work anywhere. But you are seeing some markets where the fundamental tailwinds, we, we use the term tailwinds a lot. We're looking for markets that are very much backed by some of those, um, you know, those trends that where, you know, influx of population uh, is driving a shortage of multifamily, office, industrial. Uh, those types of signals are, interesting to us because even even at the rate we're building uh, and that others are building you know just the sheer numbers that are they're driving those trends give us a lot of comfort as we're we're going into those markets and and do you do you believe that nationally I mean are you looking just in terms of sectors multifamily industrial industrial I guess is a little different because we need a distribution system all over the United States right and pretty much short of of, of enough real estate everywhere multifamily to me seems like it's a little uh not riskier um but it's very location dependent you know and some some markets have seen what 30 percent rent increases year over year D does that concern you the geographic risk or are you just so are you either outsmarting it or are you so diversified that it, it doesn't even really matter over a long enough timeline i i think it always matters um and i think diversification we we have a now at this point national platform you know we've invested in a lot of different markets so we, we are believers in diversification you know I, if, if i had a crystal ball i'd tell you what you know nashville or portland look like 10 years from now but i don't sure. uh and so the you know the, the one free lunch is is diversification um that being said you know we're we are very uh specific in our in our market selection you know we tend to be looking for and i would say this across asset classes or product types um, though logistics has some kind of interesting and different elements but we like growth markets um you know tends to be markets that are driven by 
large recent influxes of population that could be driven by quality of life, lower taxes, more business friendly environments, you know, geographically that tends to be the coasts in the Southeast and Southwest smile states, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, So as you look at our real estate portfolio, you know, we're active in markets like Denver, Austin, Nashville, uh, Phoenix, um, Salt Lake City. These are markets that, you know, 10 years ago looked quite different than they are. Uh, but you've seen a both influx of individuals and as well as well as companies to those markets. And what that does is that it obviously has a supply demand uh, influence that you know, there's going to be a shortage of multifamily, a shortage of uh, office assets. And then, you know, transitioning to logistics, those same factors drive logistics demand as well. It's, you know, a lot of these logistics facilities are meant to serve consumers who are now you know, buying and, and shipping a lot of goods online, you need large facilities located near major population centers. So all of right. a sudden, Phoenix has 2 million people that they didn't have before. You need more warehouse space. I think the only uh, additional element to logistics is you're also seeing a little bit of a shift in, in the way goods are coming into the U.S. and how they're moving around. Um, so Wait, what goods would are been- still coming into the U.S., right? <laughs> Well, I mean, yeah, funny if you've uh, if you've ordered a Peloton in the last two years, you right. need to know the pain points there. But um, but that's that's a very real situation. So I'll give you two examples. Um, I'll pick on Peloton. I mean, one one of the the big backlogs for a while was the port of Long Beach. You know, there was a uh, stories for a while about seventy or eighty ships lined up um, waiting for weeks to get in into Long Beach, and so you had fundamental choke points. You know, where where goods and and we're being shipped into the U.S. Um, and so that's caused a couple things. It's caused now port diversification. So, you know, think about places like Houston, Jacksonville, Savannah, um, Charleston. These are deep water ports, um, you know, with access to the eastern seaboard. Houston, Texas, for example, is, I believe, the closest uh, deep water port to the Panama Canal. So where that backlog existed, you know, those goods are now being redirected. Well, that you're going to be bringing in these huge container ships in the Savannah. You're going to need facilities there. And there was a New York Times story of probably about a year ago where they were, they were legitimately dumping these containers on the side of the seawall in Savannah because there weren't even warehouse facilities there. So wow. um, that that's driving opportunity. Um, there's also things we were building a project in Phoenix, Arizona which you wouldn't think of as being a, you know, an outpost for, <coughs> excuse me, for a coastal port. Uh, but it became so um, uh, crowded there, particularly in the Inland Empire around the port of Long Beach, that it actually made more sense for people to take goods off ships, put them onto a truck, and then truck them to Phoenix, which is about a four and a half hour drive, where there was much more space, much more uh land to be able to build these logistics facilities and so you're seeing you know some of that is driving some really interesting trends in the logistics space specifically but it's all centered around this idea of growth and and migration and you know a pretty meaningful movement of people you know relative to the way it exists yeah you you know nick as as you were talking about that in your examples of you know georgia and houston and phoenix I'm thinking like, yeah, who wants to deal with uh, the union in New Jersey? 
uh, you know, with <laughs> so the smile states, I mean, a lot of it is that migration. I mean, maybe this is just circular logic, but migration, because we're seeing job growth and wage growth in these areas and they're nice places to live and they're easier to do business. Um, so, you know, it's, I would call it a virtuous cycle of investment in those places that, um, you know, I'm up north, so so don't get me wrong. I love the Midwest, and uh, much yeah. love to any New Jersey listeners. Um, but but it's it's a tra- it's an it's an investment or a bet that goes beyond just simply multifamily housing. Um, just the economy that we live in, and people have the ability to migrate and work from anywhere. So you know, I don't necessarily need to live in downtown Manhattan to do this job. Um, it really resonates with me just that whole mindset of the family office of of patient capital and you know hosting this show i'm not really inside the industry i'm an lp right i i i like private placement offerings i like looking into them analyzing them kind of keeping up with with what's available so when i look at a firm like crescent so successful in the multifamily office space so much assets under management with that area of the business, you know, why bother with, with LPs? Why bother with uh, private placement offerings and your sort of everyday accredited investor or everyday, you know, financial advisor, RIA um, is, does it just enhance your scale or is there something else strategic with, with the growth in that side of your business? Yeah, I, I would answer that. Certainly scale is important. I think, you know, we are ultimately, while, while Crescent exists, we are ultimately a collection of families. Mm-hmm. And without each of those families, you know, we, we, we wouldn't be who we are. And so I think um, that's important. And so bringing in other like-minded families in and, you know, into and alongside our business to invest in these opportunities, uh, that has value. Um, and, you know, we are, we are, we have been fortunate over the last few years to, to grow to a, you know, a pretty reasonable scale, but, you know, by, there's still plenty of opportunity for us where, you know, more scale can, can drive more benefits and up, up until that point comes, you know, we'll continue to grow the business thoughtfully. So I think that's important, but I would tell you, you know, we, we are big believers in community and the value of peer networks. And to say that all we get from our investors is capital, I think would be short-sighted. You know, we have done you also on my ideas, right? You want me uh, emailing you at four in the morning with my latest crazy idea? You know, I, I will uh, <laughs> be a little careful on advertising that one. But it's it, all kidding aside. It's yeah. um, it has been an amazing you know, for me in particular a realization that you know we are listen we represent and invest on behalf of hundreds, if not thousands, of you know what are largely entrepreneurs and wealth creators. Sure. They, they didn't create wealth by being dummies, right? They, they, they know a space. They have successfully either built, you know, bought or sold businesses in those spaces. They've invested in real estate. We would be naive to not leverage that, that platform. And so we, we have done a lot around um, peer-to-peer learning opportunities and education. We will bring our clients uh, together often around topics to share ideas. Um, it's becoming a source of deal flow for us. Um, a little bit on the real estate side, very much on the private equity side, where we have seen from our clients opportunities to invest in businesses, either their businesses or businesses through their relationships. So 
it's a tangible source of opportunity where if we have a thousand sets of eyes and ears out out in the market, that's a real advantage to us. Mm -hmm. um, it also brings market intelligence. Um, if we're looking to invest in a healthcare company, you know, odds are I can call a dozen healthcare entrepreneurs or executives in very short order who are investors of ours to, to get you know, real-time feedback from practitioners in a market around a particular opportunity. And that that's extraordinarily valuable to us. So I think, you know, don't get me wrong, we, we like uh, additional capital to pursue these opportunities, but I think it's really the, the network and the value that that brings is as important as anything. Yeah, it sounds like that networking philosophy, community building, maybe as a core part of, of who you are. I mean, thinking about gathering together so many families and having shared office, shared offices. Um, that could be a very good, powerful thing. And I, I think you spoke to the power of it and its strengths. It seems like in some situations or for some companies that could be nothing but complexity and a headache. Um, so it seems like you all have found a way to, to leverage that to enhance your opportunities. Um, yeah. yeah, and I think it's, you know, I, one of the things that we've liked about, you know, many of us here were in the institutional investing world at some point. Uh, the nice thing about the family office space that, that we have found is family offices are not competitive in the sense that there's, there's lots of opportunity out there. You know, these families are, are largely trying to deploy capital or preserve capital and serve, you know, the families they represent. And there is a general acceptance in the market that, you know, you're not going to know anything, everything, and you can benefit from talking to your peers. And maybe you've got a great investment person, but you don't know what's happening. You know, you don't know what the best technology platform is. And so there's a, a lot of openness in the family office space. And you see that with some of these family office groups that have been formed and through organizations like ours. And it creates for a very collaborative environment. We all recognize that you know, if we share information, if we pool resources together, um, if we learn together, that, that that we're probably all better off as a result of that rather than being competitive uh, with one another. Yeah. And I mean, especially even structurally with a lot of deals and projects, um, you see family offices co-investing, even if they're not in a shared office or a multifamily office, yep. um, just because it's, a, it's an easy way to diversify, but also have that direct ownership and still have some control. So, I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, that set up that sort of idea, I don't want to call it a conglomerate, but, but having that family office side and then having the other side that can raise money from accredited investors, that's so intriguing to me. Could you talk a little bit about which opportunities are offered to the accredited investors? So I, I know you all have an opportunity zone fund. I believe it may even be fund two. Um, could we start with that? No, fun yeah, three. Wow, fun I'm, three. Way, I'm way out of yeah, date. That's new. That's relatively new news. Okay. Yeah. So um, I will say just from the Crescent Partners standpoint, so the, the way we've structured our business is you know, we, we will opportunistically offer investments uh, across a variety of, of asset classes, private equity, real estate, venture capital, um, different funds and different investments are structured in different ways. Um, some things will be for individual assets where we may go create an SPV to go buy a company or a single piece of real estate. 
Other things will be more uh, structured as pooled vehicles or funds where we will be deploying capital to a number of assets because we believe there's a longer term thesis there. And so those are structured more like traditional funds um, that we'll make available. Um, I have to be a little careful about what I talk about given certain private placement rules and what's what's sure. out there and not. But you know, certainly the qualified opportunity zone strategy is probably certainly our largest, uh, it's our largest strategy, I think our best known strategy. It is available uh, externally, just to be clear, to qualified clients, uh, which is a slightly different um, uh, qualification than accredited investor, but but very close. Uh, not not quali- quali- sorry, not qualified purchaser, right? Now we have a correct. It's a third definition. Okay, it's a third definition. It comes from the 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 fact that we're a part of a registered broker dealer, so um, it is a slightly higher than accredited, but. The goal is to, you know, the, the idea of building this fund was to be as accessible as possible to the broadest number of people. When, uh, when are they going to index accredited to inflation, by the way? I mean, it seems like that's almost just a workaround to the fact that accredited investor wasn't. I mean, even like every five years, shouldn't it just be a job? I don't know. Sorry, I digress. Well, and and and, and the view that somehow... Um, your level of income necessarily uh, signifies sophistication. Mm-hmm. I've met a lot of rich, unsophisticated people, and I've met a lot of very smart, you know, uh, less wealthy people. So anyway, that's um, neither here nor there. But I, you know, the, our goal is in a lot of these fund structures to create as much accessibility as, as possible. Again, we're believers in this idea that by pooling together many, we can, we can be more efficient. Um, opportunity zones is an area um, and I'm not sure how much time you've spent on it uh, here on your podcast, but an area that lined up very, in, you know, very well with our business in the sense that we are long-term investors in real estate. Um, we are taxable investors who are always thinking about after-tax returns, mm. um, and we can be opportunistic and res- be responsive to, to new and emerging opportunities. And so, no, and that's interesting. Yeah. That's a real interesting thing right there that you just said, though, because. I think opportunity zones are unique in that, you know, the tax incentive, and we do talk about it a lot on this program, the tax incentive is so valuable. You don't want to let the tail wag the dog. You know, you want to have a good, a good investment, with good fundamentals, but, but the tax benefit is so substantial that it affects things quite a bit. And it seems like all these institutions, why would they be interested in opportunity zones investing, right? Because- if they're not being taxed on their investment returns. So that seems to me to be uh, an area where a family office essentially might be the biggest player, yep. right? Like there's sure. not going to, because you're the biggest taxable player. Uh, sorry, That's, go on, go on. No, you're hundred, you're hundred percent right. Uh, I was just going to make the comment. We've, I've, I've heard the analogy that uh, the tax benefits on QOZ, if you do it right. And I a hundred percent agree with you. The, the, the reality and opportunity zones are you have to get the investment right mm-hmm. um, because without that really the whole the benefit is on not paying taxes on your gain doesn't make it doesn't do any good if you don't generate a gain so you got to get the investment right if you get it right it, the tax benefit is is real it's meaningful um, you know I've, I've heard the saying it's not the icing on the cake it's a whole other cake 
um, it can really drive outsized returns. And you're right. You know, you, you look at pools of capital, large family offices, people selling businesses, uh, having large liquidity events. It's a really very flexible program. It can be, you know, sale of artwork. You know, there was a period of time where we were seeing a lot of crypto gains uh, that were that were being uh, put in the QOZ. But it's, you know, listen, if, if it's a, if for taxable investors, if you have, and I'm going to go back to your term, patient capital, if you have the ability to be patient, take a long-term time horizon, uh, have interest in diversifying into real estate and have a capital gain. Um, you know, it is one of the best uh, gifts you'll get from the federal government because the, the, the compounding effect of the program is, is very powerful. Absolutely. Um, but to, yeah, and to, to your point, so we have, you know, we've been investing in that space since 18. We are on fund three. Um, is it so a diversified we, fund? So is each fund investing in new assets or is it a pool of assets with a new fund that can kind of go anywhere? No. So think of them as kind of traditional closed end structures where, you know, those funds are raised, they're deployed to a pool of assets, uh, that fund is closed and we move on to the next one. Got it. Um, so we've done two series of those, um, you know, both which have raised, the first one raised about 465 million uh, invested in seven assets. The second raised uh, 650 million is invested in nine assets. And we're now on the fund three, just launched that a month or so ago. Um, what and- was the latest estimate that was, it was 30 billion raised and operate. So you guys would be 3%. I think that was from Novogratic or someone recently. Yeah. It, by the way, I think that wildly um, underestimated the actual money that was invested in opportunity zones. But so Crescent Partners is one of the larger players. Then I know I know that that you guys got an early, um, yeah, yeah. but so you're one of the larger players. And are those their diversified funds? Are they focusing on logistics or is it a mix of logistics and other sectors? Um, the, the opportunity zones are largely focused on multifamily, okay. uh, not necessarily by design, but, you know, it would, I would say probably 70 to 80% of the capital there is in multifamily. There, there's a couple reasons why we like multifamily within the context of a 10 year hold. Uh, one, you know, the, the annual rent rolls on, on leases that, you know, that has a better inflation hedge with it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some concern industrial, a lot of industrial leases are 10 year leases, um, often with single, oh, well, tenant so you building. can't, you can't reprice a rent with industrial necessarily. And if inflation sticks at 8% for five more years, that could really get wonky, I guess, with some, some long you, you can often, uh, negotiate in, uh, uh, rent increases and escalations into a contract. The bigger concern, particularly with QOZ is if you have a logistics building that has one tenant that's going to roll over every 10 years and you're going to sell that building at 10 years, yeah. you know, you, you could have a situation where you are either 100% leased or 0% leased. That, that's not a good... We want to uh, exit a stabilized asset that's 98% leased up, right? So yeah, I could see that. Versus, the- yeah. yeah, it's, it's a good versus multifamily where you're at any point in time, you're 90, 95% you know, leased there's much more certainty around that at, at the time of exit. So we like multifamily, but we've done a couple office buildings. Um, logistics is tough for that reason. The other challenge with logistics today, um, 
right now, given the current environment uh, and the dislocation in pricing to build a logistics building and hold it for 10 years, you're actually better to build it, lease it, and sell it. The, the premiums that these are fetching in the market, given that supply demand imbalance, the economics don't work out. Um, it's kind of better to, to develop and sell it than it is to develop and hold it. Wow. Um, so we're, yeah. So for that reason, we're focused mostly on multifamily and, and office for now. And then I understand that Crescent also is involved with private equity and venture capital. So let's talk about those spaces for a minute. Um, yeah. We've seen real estate, like institutional quality real estate. Obviously, there was a big run up. I mean, you just mentioned yourself with logistics real estate to where it, it's still um, is, is not, let's say, not necessarily priced attractively for a long term buy and hold. Um, and I know that, you know, overvaluation it, these days, you know, in the past decade or two, it seems to just everything kind of moves together. So are valuations attractive in private equity and venture capital right now? Are they more attractive relative to public markets? Or is it just, uh, you know, is it again, finding the quality and it's sort of not so much the big picture, it's more that the certain opportunities that you find are attractive? Yeah, it's a good question, I'd say, remains to be seen. <laughs> Let's maybe check back in three to six months. Well, and, you, and you're probably the, the most honest um, guest I've had so far. In the, oh, I'm kidding. Uh, I appreciate that candor, though. It, it's interesting. It's um, There are pockets where uh, valuations and, and, and multiples have not come in. And you're witnessing a little bit of a game of chicken right now where the owners don't want to reprice, but there's a general feeling in the market that the asset needs to be priced, uh, repriced. And, and, you know, everybody's waiting to see who blinks first. Um, so can, I can think we just all wait for two years and there will be a 16% real repricing if we just, you know, if, if it nominally stays flat. I, I think that's 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 likely though the interesting thing about this environment. Yes, you know multiples were high, however, and, and rates are interest rates are going up, but you still have it many places. You have full employment. You've got companies that are continuing to uh, produce, you know, continue to grow and produce returns. So it is a very case by case analysis uh, by sector by business that. You know, just because market multiples are coming down doesn't necessarily justify that all multiples should come down. Well, that's so interesting. It seems to me like the re the recession that we're in, it, I guess not everybody agrees it, but that we are, but it's hit a segment of people. And then there's other segments of people or MSAs like Washington, D.C. It's like recession. What are you talking about? Our revenues are up. 30% or whatever. Yeah. And, and so it's not that overall down, you're right, that overall pressure, it's not evenly distributed throughout the economy at all. It's not. And I think, you know, to the other part of your question on venture, where you have seen multiples reprise is in things that were much more growth oriented. So where multiples have come in is on, you know, growth is not being priced the way it was before. That has absolutely impacted venture capital. Um, you know, some of these venture companies, they, they have repriced, you're seeing down rounds on companies. Um, you know, interestingly for us, our, we're relatively new into venture capital. So we are actually um, early in our deployment. I'd like to take credit for this, but we're going to probably end up more, more lucky than anything else. It's a really attractive time today to be deploying into venture capital because 
those multiples have come down. Some of the supply demand, I shouldn't call them supply demand, some of the imbalances that existed in the GP-LP relationships and venture, where these VCs could drive extraordinary terms and raise an you know, ungodly amount of capital, those things have right-sided. So you're seeing much more normalization in, um, in venture. You're also seeing just slower deal pacing, okay. which allows these VCs to really underwrite the deal, not just feel the need to jump at everything. And so it's, right. this has actually created a really nice landscape for venture capital uh, investing. And if you look back historically at VC vintage years, uh, you know, it's typically the vintage years coming out of uh, recessionary environments that are pretty good. You know, post.com, post GFC, those are decent times to be deploying uh, capital into venture. So we feel like there's some value and opportunity there. We'll see on the kind of more traditional, you know, private equity side of things. We certainly think there's some opportunities and way to do it, uh, you know, more defensively, preferred securities, defensive industry sectors. But there's not a wholesale step down yet there that's, um, you know, screaming by signal just yet. Well, we can only hope, you know, um, we could all use a little humility, my, myself included, Um and I think that the VC industry, they're, they're probably due for a little humility. Um, but as you said, it's really timing has such a huge role in this. And where there's a surplus of capital that's chasing opportunity, um, you have very little leverage, right? When you're looking to place that capital. When the market dynamic shifts coming out of the, the, the dot-com crash, uh, obviously a very different dynamic there. And as you said, uh, created a great vintage year so nick this was just an awesome conversation i um i can't thank you enough for you know just sharing your knowledge about family offices and um the strategies that you use at crescent partners uh for our viewers and listeners who are interested in learning more um specifically about your offerings for accredited investors where can they go to learn more about those opportunities and about crescent yeah, you know, I would probably say, uh, you, you know, check out our websites. The best way to do it, uh, crescentpartners.com. Um, a, a lot of detail on opportunity zones and logistics in particular, but certainly um, uh, ways to connect with us to learn more about anything that we're doing. So start there and we're happy to be a resource to anybody uh, who we can be helpful to. Awesome. And so for our listeners, if you want links to all the stuff we mentioned in today's show, including a link to Crescent Partners website. I'll be sure to put that in the show notes at altstv.com slash podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to our show on YouTube and your favorite podcast listening platform. So you can be sure to receive our new episodes as we release them. Oh, and don't forget to leave us a five-star review. I also love getting those <laughs> reviews. Nick, thanks again for coming on the show today and sharing all your knowledge with us. Thanks, Andy. Happy to be here. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database, online at altsdb.com. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altsdb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. 